Good morning, Bear Valley Church. This is uh, National Associate Pastor Sunday. I don't know if you knew that. Um, no, just kidding. Uh, many churches around the country, around the world. No, um, my name is Brandon. I'm the executive pastor here. Um, I'm glad to do it. Glad to be here. Glad to bring the word to you this morning and uh, get to hear from God what he says to us. Uh, did, did you ever wonder why Jesus did miracles? Why, why come and do that? And then, so if you're like me, you ask these questions sometimes, and why did he do it? But then there's an even funnier question. Why did he do the miracles where he did the miracles? Right? Like, why not? Uh, what's going on? And did you know that Jesus did, we believe that he did most of his miracles in one small part of Israel that is really smaller than the size of Tehachapi? Right? Most of the miracles Jesus did, most of the healings, most of the miraculous feedings, walking on water, all these things happened in a little small area in Israel. Um, We don't have to guess. The Bible tells us. Why that area? Uh, Why did he do it there? Why would God give such a wonderful privilege and position to one one little small part, and the answer may surprise you. Maybe some of us think, well, they must have, been, they must have done really good. Right? They must have been the best part of Israel. Right? They get the Messiah. It's like being voted number one in the class. Right? Like, um, I remember we had a physics class, and we were going to shoot off bottle rockets. You know, And there were all these rockets, and, and you got to choose based on your grade in the class. And so if you were top grade, you got first choice and your rocket went like a thousand feet. If you were down at the bottom, you got a rocket that went like 50 feet or something. But um, did they do something really good? Or maybe the rest of Israel rejected Jesus and they accepted him. Or maybe they were better, like in the Old Testament. Maybe they had done, they'd been more faithful in the Old Testament. Well, we're not going to have to guess. If you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 12. Um, I want to give you a little context. Where are we at in Jesus' life? Uh, Jesus, uh, obviously, Christmas time, had been born. Uh, we have accounts of his birth. We have one account of him uh, in his childhood. And then we have most of the accounts once he starts his ministry, is what we call it. All right? And that ministry would last three years. And it kind of kicks off uh, with his baptism and his temptation and some things that happened in Jerusalem. Okay? Now, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. All right, it's a big deal. Uh, it's where all the politics happened. It's where all the uh, big things were, where the international trade was. So Jesus' ministry did, did kind of kick off there, right? And uh, so John the Baptist says, this is the Messiah. And there's a bunch of people around to hear John the Baptist say that. You have the Pharisees looking at Jesus in Jerusalem going, hmm, what about this guy? And it says from that point forward, they watched him. Right? They, were, they said, who is this Jesus? Like, basically, he breaks onto the scene, and he has his first Passover, does some miracles there. And this, this portion of his ministry, like, like I said, it kicked off. It showed who he was, all this stuff. But then John the Baptist is thrown in prison. The Pharisees are watching him. The political climate is unstable. And Matthew says that he withdraws into Galilee. And we actually know that when he first goes into Galilee, he goes to his hometown, right? And actually in his hometown of Nazareth, he gives one of the clearest declarations that he's the Messiah, 
right? He takes a portion of the book of Isaiah and he reads it to them. And he says, I tell you the truth today in your hearing, this is fulfilled. And what do they do to him in Nazareth? Right? They seek, they kick him out. They seek to kill him, right? Who are you? Get out of here. So he's rejected in his small hometown of Nazareth. And then he's going to end up in Galilee, in Capernaum. So if you'd stand with me as we read God's word, we'll start Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Now, when he heard, that's Jesus, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You all pray with me. God, we come to you before your word. Um, Lord, we're nothing special here, um, but you, God, we want to hear from you. Um, God, push aside any temptation to make this about me or about uh, even anyone sitting in the pews. God, this is about you and who you are and what you do and how you've loved and how you've kept your promises. So God, uh, teach us this morning, encourage us, uh, help us to be thrilled by who you are. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, being that uh, there's geography in this sermon, we're going to look at some maps. Um, so first, we're going to kind of go over the background and the text. And then at the end, I promise we'll draw out some lessons uh, of what I think God wants to teach us. So let's look at where we are here. Okay, so at the bottom, you see Judea. That's where um, Jerusalem is. That's where the ministry is kicked off. But then basically Jesus withdraws into Galilee and Capernaum is marked there with a the little red dot. Um, and really this was the backwaters of Israel. All right. The northern part was considered, you know, they weren't, they were just up there. We don't know what they're doing up there. Um, but Capernaum was a little bit bigger city than, than Nazareth. And he withdraws, to, he withdraws there and it's marked on the map. And then Matthew points out specifically though, if you look down at uh, verse 12. So he heard that John the Baptist had been arrested and he withdrew into Galilee and he left Nazareth. We already said he was rejected there. And he lived in Capernaum uh, by the sea. And then Matthew is the only gospel writer who says this in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Naphtali, Naphtali, tomato, tomato. Uh, but he's about to, and, and Matthew puts this in here because he recognizes this as a great fulfillment uh, the great fulfillment of a promise that God had made long ago. Um, what are we waiting for as believers? We're waiting for Christ to return, right? The promise was made long ago. And yet, we wait. This promise had been made long ago. So, if you look at uh, this map here, you got Capernaum again. Capernaum marked with a red dot. And you'll see the ancient tribes of Israel and Zebulun and Naphtali are right there. Right, And so Capernaum is right in the middle of these two tribes that this promise was specifically made to. Okay, And so um, what happens here is that this is the busiest, the longest, like I said, the most miracle-filled time of Jesus' ministry. 
Okay, the next 18 months of Jesus' ministry, he's going to spend in this area. If you go to the next map, people actually call it the, um, the evangelical triangle. Right? You can make a little triangle between, with Capernaum right in the middle, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and this other little tiny town right there. And if you look at that little area, smaller than the size of Tehachapi, maybe three square miles, this is where Jesus did most of his miracles. Right? It's a little tiny part. And so again, the question that I ask is why? And we're going to leave that map up there and we'll get to one more in a second. But look down at verse 15. Right? And so Matthew recognizes this is a promise fulfilled so that what was spoken of the prophet might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Basically that way of the sea Talks about um, being on this route. Beyond the Jordan is like that part. And Galilee of the Gentiles is like that attitude that they're way up there somewhere. We don't know. They, they, they're, just, they're far away from the politics and all this stuff. They're just up there. And this quote comes from Isaiah chapter 9. And if you look at Isaiah, the chapter 7 to 12, you could subtitle it the book of Emmanuel. A lot of the quotes from the Old Testament that you're going to hear in the next month are from Isaiah chapter 7 through 12. Okay? The book of Emmanuel we have, for unto us a child is born. We have verses like that. That's in Isaiah. And what Isaiah is is prophesying is that this is a terrible time in Israel when Isaiah is is preaching. All right? In fact, I want to read to you something. Um, (laughs) Oh, did I leave this part out? No, it's back here. King Ahaz is on the throne when Isaiah makes this prophecy. And let me read to you what 2 King says about Ahaz. Um, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. But unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the king of Israel. Okay, that means that basically he forgot God. And in this part, which is not said of many other kings... And he sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations that the Lord had driven out before Israel. He offered sacrifices and burnt in, and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Right. And so that's what's going on uh, when Isaiah is prophesying this. And basically, what all these kings are bringing on to the land of Israel is judgment. They're bringing judgment. (laughs) The kings are walking away from the Lord. They don't care about him. This one is sacrificing his son to Molech. And yet, God in this book of Emmanuel says, I'm going to come and walk among you one day. I'm going to come and walk among you and I'm going to make these things right. So in this context, this wicked king could have listened to these signs, but in the, in the most part, they didn't. But what does this mean? So when you look down at verse 15, it says, or sorry, verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So we'll go to our last map here. I still got a lot of ring in here, Kevin, but so... Uh, this red line, uh, ICH, this is an old map from college. International Coastal Highway. 
okay, the International, International Coastal Highway. What this means is, this is where the armies came, right? This is, this is the route. And so every time a king of Israel was disobedient, this is where the armies marched. Basically, Naphtali and Zebulun are the no man's land. <laughs> They're the land between the trenches, right? You, got, you might have, you have Israel in the mountains, the country, like the big part of Israel is in the mountains, and you have, or hills really, compared to what we know as mountains here. And you have Assyria, Babylon, Syria, all these enemies of Israel up to the northeast. And every time there's a battle, who gets the brunt of it? The people who walked in darkness, people who walked in the shadow, the region in the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned, right? And so you don't even, it would be hard to describe to you how many times that this area would have been marched through by foreign armies, would have been given over, like just, just decimated, not because of anything they were doing, Remember? They weren't the politically elite. They weren't the ones making the decisions. They weren't the ones that were, that were making these decisions about, well, we're going to lie with Egypt or we're going to lie with this. Like, they weren't making any of those decisions. And yet every time that the armies came, this is where they came first. It was straight through this land. Sometimes they made it far in. Sometimes they didn't make it very far in. But if they even showed up at all, this land of darkness, this land in the shadow of death, got it. They just took it on the chin every single time. Okay? So what does it mean? Isaiah references this land that is that has received the worst of the fighting, the worst of the grief. It's these people who foreigners trampled on, the Assyrian army, the Babylonian army, constant war between Israel and Syria, and then finally carried off in exile. The Assyrian army, which is the one that Isaiah's referencing primarily, were known for their cruelty. It says in ancient history, their favorite, their, the favorite pursuit of, of Assyrian kings were war and hunting. This is what these kings did. They were known for making war. They were known for hunting. They were known for being merciless, savage, ruthless, effective. They burned cities. They burned children. They impaled people on stakes. They beheaded people and they chopped off hands, most of which was just because they were coming through the area. Right? So, it's on these people that the Lord says, I'll send the light. So basically, God said, when the Savior comes, the light will shine brightest, and the light will shine first, in the area of Israel that has suffered the most. He promised this through Isaiah hundreds of years before, and Matthew looks at Jesus' life and says, Capernaum is not a random choice. It's not like, oh, I got kicked out of Nazareth, so I'll kind of go to the next city. Right? God put his finger down and said, this is where the Messiah will heal. This is where the Messiah will feed. This is where the Messiah will show his care. 
right here, this little area of Israel that was so often walked over. They got to see the dawn. You guys know about the dawn? Right? If you've ever been up all night worrying about something, waiting, if your kid's been sick all night, if you've been in the hospital with someone, then the dawn comes. There's like, okay, made it through a night. Made it through the night. Um, that's what Jesus coming to this area is, is the dawn, the dawn for Israel. And so I want to move on to some lessons. Um, so the, like the passage is not terribly hard to understand, right? We see the geography. We see the fulfillment of the promise. We see why this land is called the land that walked, the people that walked in darkness, the people that were in the shadow of death. So what do we learn from this, all right? So the title of the sermon is God Keeps His Promises. And I want to say this, God kept His promises even when the people had forgotten. Right? He was faithful. Do you think there was a sense in Capernaum where people were going, well, you know, we got that promise. There were faithful people that might have been thinking that, but I think in general the town had probably moved on. Right? And they just thought, well, we just, this is, we just, this is life and this is, what, this is what we're in for and this is just what happens to us. Woe is us. Woe is us. But God was faithful. It had been, it had been 700 years since God had made this promise. 700 years. And yet God, when Jesus comes to earth, says, this spot right here, I've been reserving, I've been reserving the miracles for this place. Right here. And there were faithful people who recognized it. Um, and so what is, this, what is this for us? God's faithful. Um, God's faithful. And so sometimes we think that means if God's faithful, then the cancer is going to go away. Or if God's faithful, then our country's going to get better. Or if God's faithful, then I'm not going to have any problems with my kids. Or if God's faithful, right? We put these things. Um, we're in a long-term thing here. You guys, right? We realize that. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for heaven. We're waiting for the return of the Lord. And for us to go, oh God, I'm in such darkness. And I'm, believe me, I preach this because I'm tempted to this, right? Man, the woe is me, complaining, self-pity deal. Sign me up. Sign me up. I'll put my name on there. I'll, come, I'll just say, oh yeah, suffering, bad times, trials, Recount them to you like a sad country song. Okay? Um, God's faithful. 700 years. Can we wait 40 years? Some of you, that number's shorter probably. All right. For all of us, it might be tomorrow. Where the Lord says, you're worried about your country over the next two years of some election cycle. And God could be sitting there going, <laughs> uh, tomorrow, you know, I got my finger on it. We don't know. We don't know. But what we do know is that our God is faithful. Right? He's faithful. If you're going through trials, He's faithful. If life is wonderful, He's faithful. If you've made decisions that screwed up your life, God is still faithful. If you think you're awesome, God is still faithful. Right? There's some other passages we could go over about that. But even when people had forgotten, 
God was faithful to keep his promises. Okay, so that was lesson number one. Uh, God didn't forget. God is faithful. Uh, Number two, God kept his promise to recognize their suffering. Right? He is compassionate. He is compassionate. So when I say, I'm not saying that trials don't matter. I'm not saying that it's not, I'm not saying that it's this thing where, oh, it doesn't matter that there's been hard things in my life. But what we want to, what you want to know is that God is the most compassionate of anyone. Right? There's no one who has more compassion in this universe than our God. Not a one. And so the hard things we go through, the trials, the times of life, we look to God and we say, God, I'm looking for the dawn. And I know that you see the darkness. I know that you see it, God. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to pity myself. I don't want to start thinking, woe is me. I don't want to start thinking that God is different than who he really is. God is compassionate. He's the most compassionate one you could imagine. And he saw these people. And he says, I'm going to send the Messiah. They're going to get the first taste of what life will be like when the curse is reversed. And God says, I'm putting a new heaven and a new earth. And all this sin and all this death is done. We didn't get the first taste of that. We have the Spirit in us. We have new life spiritually. But around us, the curse is, is full effect. All right? Getting old is not for the faint of heart. Is what I, well, you know. But these people, these people got the down payment. You think there were, I mean, I, I, it's only three square miles. I mean, we don't have every recorded miracle of Jesus, but it was probably a really good time to be living in those three square miles. Right? They got the down payment, and God says, I'm faithful and I'm compassionate. And I see the suffering. I see these people suffering from no cause of their own. Right? We all bring suffering on ourselves sometimes, but this is a different lesson. And so I, don't, I wonder if we've forgotten that God sees our sufferings. He sees our toil. He sees our good things. He sees when we care. He sees when we're persecuted. He sees when we cry because a friend has gone astray. He sees that we dwell in darkness. It's not... It's not like he, he knows. And he's compassionate. And to prove it, the answer to where Jesus did his miracles was not random. It was God saying, I want to show you just how compassionate I am. I'm going to choose this spot for the Messiah to come. Because if he's going to, yeah, either way. Number three, God kept his promises, but the message was still the same. He's righteous. God's righteous. <laughs> So we skipped over some verses. We put the next uh, slide up. At the end, verse 17 says, From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's in this area that suffered so much, and he's doing miracles. I mean, just the most miraculous things we could imagine. He's doing them. And does it say that the message was, don't worry, you've suffered, you can just keep doing your own thing? Right? Was that, was that the message? That because they had suffered so much that they got some kind of special pass, that they got some kind of 
you know, self-pity card where they could say, well, I know about that God stuff, but my life has been really hard. They didn't. They didn't. God is righteous, and He sees our suffering, but the message is the same, right? And what word does it start with? Repent. Repent. They might not have brought all that suffering on themselves, but they were sinners, right? There was suffering that they had brought on themselves, and there was suffering that they had caused to other people, and more importantly than all of that, there was offense that they had caused before a holy God. And so it wasn't that, okay, everything's going to be fine now. Jesus sees that life's been real hard, and so you just keep doing what you're doing and following your own selfish ways, and God will kind of come and make your life better. And then it'll be okay. No. The message was repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus didn't just heal and work miracles or comfort these people living in darkness. He preached to them that they needed to repent. They needed to turn from whatever they were following, which in the end for all of us is ourselves. Right? We love to follow ourselves. My good ideas, my thoughts of what religion should be, my thoughts of who God is, my thought, like that's who we are. We just, we bring our selfish nature to everything. And Jesus went to them and said, you need to turn from that. You need to turn from that. It's a beautiful picture because this land, because it was on this borderland, this land, because it was on the border, there was also this mix of Gentiles, this mix of non-Israelites, this mix of people who didn't know anything about Israel's history or, or Yahweh or covenants or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was this mix of people, and the message was the same to all of them. Right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't be, don't, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. People like to write a bunch of stuff about that, but just think that Jesus is saying, me, right? When he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's while he's introducing himself, okay? And so whatever you want to think of about end time things and whatever, the point of Jesus' message was the Messiah is here in front of you. The Savior is here in front of you. Repent and follow me, right? God didn't forget. He's righteous, and the message was the same they didn't get a special pass because life had been hard. They didn't get to make excuses or cling to their sin because life had been hard. Right? And so I want to encourage you today, if there's things in your life, things that you've been clinging to, things that you say, hmm, what's going on here? I don't, I don't know what's going on. And, and you want to cling to sin and selfishness because life has been hard. Right? I want to encourage you to give that up and say, I need to repent. Need to repent, just like everybody else. Um, one of our favorite psalms around here is the psalm where David is almost slipping, right? He sees the prosperity of the wicked and he looks around him and says, God, how can these people not have suffering and I have suffering? And his point comes to be that, Jesus, that God is righteous, right? He says, I come in, until I came into the sanctuary, 
and realize the end of this. Right? Realize the long perspective. Then he had the right perspective on his, on his sufferings and other people's supposed not sufferings. Okay? One last point, and then I'll let you go. Uh, number four. God will keep his promises even when we suffer. Right? He is hope. This is the obvious point. But I wanted to point out that this is a biblical passage. Or a bit, sorry, of course it's a biblical passage. This is a biblical pattern. This is a biblical pattern. Um, I had a really wonderful prof in seminary who would constantly say, first the suffering, then the glory. First the suffering, then the glory. We don't like that. We don't like it, right? We say, no, can we skip that suffering part? First the suffering, then the glory. Um, so I think we see that here, but I also see it in Romans eight seventeen, which we just were in a little while ago. Uh, it says, and if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Right? Paul recognized that to sign up for the Christian life is to sign up for additional suffering. Right? And in our country, man, we haven't, we don't, we don't like it. <laughs> Right? We don't, I don't like it. Like I've already confessed. This, I mean, I don't like it. But we've signed up for additional suffering. First uh, Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Right? He said, when trials come upon you, don't say, what is this weird thing? Right? In America, we're so surrounded by comfort. Right? We push things away that we don't like. And we act like, oh, what kind of strange, weird thing? This is weird. Right? We try to share Christ with someone and they don't like it. We go, what? I'm offended that you didn't like it. What? I mean, it's obvious, right? We live in a sinful world. We get we get a bad health we get a bad health report, and we go, "I am shocked. I am shocked that my body is falling apart under the curse of sin." It's got to be some way to not to not have this happen. People cause us suffering. We wonder that our relationships are strained. Last but not least, uh, they really, I mean, I, this was the part. There, I mean, I think there were probably 25 verses to put at this in section, but we'd be here till Christmas. So First uh, Peter, uh, we're going to go to 5.10. First Peter 5.10. After you have suffered a little while, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. First the suffering, then the glory. Right? It's like where Paul says, even though you've had to endure trials for a little time, right? Little trials for a little time, there's an eternal weight of glory stored up for you. 
And so some of you, some of you seem very close, you seem closer to the end of the race. And yet, at the end here, there is suffering. Don't tremble. Don't be afraid. God is compassionate. God is faithful. God is righteous. God is hope. Right? He's got it for you. Um, Those of us uh, in the middle of a race, don't be shocked. (laughs) Don't be shocked when suffering comes. Go, oh yeah, I was warned about this. And those of you at the beginning of the race, you've signed up for the race that ends in the right place. Right? It ends in the right place. Don't give up if it gets hard. There's some uphill sections. Right? Let me pray for us. We'll be done for today. God, thank you for loving us, uh, for caring for us, uh, for this little passage um, in this book that shows us, God, your love and your grace. Um, God, help us to know you and to not, um, to not be selfish, God, to not follow our own ways, to not think that we know best, that we um, have a handle on all of life, um, that we should do what we think is best. Uh, but God, help us to repent and to turn to Christ daily, uh, to turn away from our own ways, to walk by your Spirit. Um, God, thank you that there is a glorious, glorious place waiting for us. Um, and Lord, if first the suffering and then the glory, we're just following in the line of Christ. Lord, he suffered for us. He suffered for us and then was raised to glory again with you. And so God, help us to walk in that, to walk in his path, to rejoice in it. God, help us to be so encouraged by the down payment that you gave to those people that had walked in darkness. God, encourage us, uh, lift up our hearts. Um, God, as we suffer, um, we just give it to you. Um, And Lord, for those that um, life seems good right now, God, may they praise you all the more. Lord, in the good times, may we not forget what a blessing it is to get to have a relationship with you and to get to have hope and joy and all these things, God. Lord, we love you. Thank you again for this church family. God, for those who are sick especially, we pray for them, God, that you would walk with them, encourage them, help them to know your faithfulness and your peace and your righteousness and the hope that you have. And God, um, help us as a church body to come around them and remind them of those things. So we love you, God. Uh, We give this day to you and this Christmas season. um, Thank you, God, that we got to see the light dawn and walk and we get to read about Christ's life. Uh, Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.